Hi, this is Adrian Gostick, author of Anxiety at Work, and you are listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Adrian Gostick. Adrian Gostick is a global thought leader in the fields of corporate culture, leadership, and engagement. He provides advice to some of the world's largest organizations on managing change, driving innovation, and leading high-performance teams. He's the founder of the workplace assessment company, findmojo.com, and author of multiple New York Times, USA Today, and Wall Street Journal bestsellers, which have been translated into 30 languages and have sold more than 1.5 million copies around the world. Adrian has appeared on NBC's Today Show, CNN, CNBC, and is often quoted in The Economist, Financial Times, Newsweek, and The Wall Street Journal. In 2021, he was ranked as a top 10 global guru in leadership and organizational culture. His consulting clients include Danaher, Bank of America, Cisco, Rolls-Royce, and Procter & Gamble. Adrian lives in Park City, Utah, and is here to talk about his book, Anxiety at Work, Eight Strategies to Help Teams Build Resilience, Handle Uncertainty, and Get Stuff Done. Welcome, Adrian. Hey, thanks, Bill, for having me on the show. Such a pleasure to be here with you. Tell me, when you were growing up, Adrian, who's somebody who influenced or inspired you? Thanks, Bill, for asking that. Kind of looking back, my my dad was an inspiration to me. My dad worked 25 years at Rolls-Royce in England. He was a designer of components for jet engines. Rolls-Royce has four big divisions. One of them is aerospace. So they make the they make the jet engines that go into the Airbuses or, or Boeings or McDonnell Douglas planes. So his job was to make little parts of those big planes. He was just so passionate for the work he did. He loved the innovation of Rolls-Royce. He was a risk taker. After 25 years of Rolls-Royce, he decided to strike out to to Canada and become a designer of grain elevators. I think his passion for his work, his love of a little bit of risk now and then, smart risk, really rubbed off on me, I think. What's an example of when you were maybe during the move to Canada and while he was doing that development work, he actually started a company or joined a company to do the grain elevator design work. Yeah, he joined the company. What was interesting is he really didn't know what he would be doing. He came over to Canada. He started working in aerospace, again, design, and just said, let's take a flyer here. He came west to uh, into Western Canada, and I'm in the U.S. now. I'm in Park City, Utah. But uh, yeah, he came west and... Uh, this was just, he said, look, I'm a designer. I can figure this out. It, design is design, even though I had no experience in, in this field. And so I think it, it, to me, it was an interesting lesson in risk is that we have to feel confident in ourselves that sometimes risks don't work out. You had a livelihood and a family to worry about. But if you feel confident in yourself that you can take a risk now and then. That's part of what makes it so meaningful, because if it always worked out, there would be no exactly bold things requires that kind of of calculated assessment and deciding when and where and how to make those moves so that you could advance, but without exposing yourself to too great a degree in case it doesn't work out. You know, it really is. It's there's an, in biology, there's the accepted range of risk for an animal out in the wild. It knows it needs to take a little bit of a risk to, to get food, but it also doesn't go so extreme that it could put itself in danger. We're, we're the same way as human animals here. We, we realize that we should be able to take a risk. But then again, I wouldn't quit to, to go to medical school at this point. That's a risk that probably wasn't wouldn't pay off for me. We have to be wise with 
within it. But you're exactly right that sometimes we got to stretch ourselves too and say, within my expertise, my scope, what's something I can push myself that next 10% or 20%? With your dad as an example, and I'm sure there were a multitude of examples that were discussed over the dinner table, either directly or indirectly, things that you picked up. Can you remember a time in your early in your career when you decided that you were going to take a risk for yourself and make a decision that you ordinarily wouldn't or choose to work with someone that you ordinarily wouldn't, but do something that was a little bit outside your comfort zone and you were buoyed by your dad's example and his words and encouragement about taking risk when it's appropriate. Yeah, I moved from big company to big company for for most of my earlier career. But about 10 years ago, that was when I actually 11 years now, that's when my co-author Chester Elton and I, we took a big leap. We left the security of a big corporation and it was paying us well. They gave us lots of freedom. We had a good team that would support us. And yet we just felt this ennui. There was something missing. And as we analyzed it, really what we were missing was we didn't own any of our own work. We didn't really control our own destiny. We felt like hired guns going in. We didn't really work deeply with organizations. We were paid to go in, make an impression, and then move on to the next city, the next client. And there just was not that fulfilling for us, even though we had a lot of the things that psychologists told us we should want, like autonomy and mastery and all these things. We didn't have what mattered to us, which was ownership and creativity and an ability to go deep and really develop a client. That's really one time, Bill, where I took that flyer. And what was interesting is both my dad and my mom, who are still around at 91, called me every day after that. They said, okay, how are you doing? How are you holding up? Because they knew the stress that comes with making a big jump like that. But it's been terrifically successful. And it's also something that really has met me where I'm motivated. So that's interesting, Adrian. You were both working from what I gather at some large consulting firm, maybe one of the big four. And the two of you collaborated together and left at the same time to work in, did you decide to form your own company? Did you each decide to work independently, but collaboratively? How did that go? Because Chester was a guest on a couple of times and we on episode 315, and we talked about anxiety at work. And as a topic, it is something that is on people's minds, even though it may not be spoken about as much. I think that so many of us are at that stage. Many people are at that stage, feels like they're working alone now that we're in the second year of the pandemic lockdown. And there are like 60 something percent that are partially inoculated. So things are looking good, but we're still all working from home. There's that stress and anxiety that comes from being in a different situation and expecting things that aren't true. And this is, of course, the basis. It wasn't the plan, but this was the outcome of the timeliness of your book, Anxiety at Work. What are some of the lessons that you've drawn on that you see that are relevant today, even more so than a year ago? We began this book, Bill, a couple of years ago, back in 2018, when we saw rising anxiety levels. If you're a small business owner, you're a mid-sized business owner, maybe you noticed this, that a lot of employees were starting to burn out, ghosting we were seeing. Every manager or every business leader that I met had a story of some employee who blinked out. They seemed so promising, then they left. Or And, and I don't know why. What we we're seeing were rising anxiety levels two years ago. But as, then, as you say, of course, 14, 15 months ago, all of a sudden, this worldwide event happens. And if it had a silver lining, it's that we all began to see this mental health stuff is real because it affected me all of a sudden, not just somebody else. And what we're finding is about one third of working adults right now have a full-blown anxiety disorder they're living with, including 42% of people in their 20s. Now, this is huge. And the trouble is, in many 
many organizations, many small businesses or mid-sized businesses, they're not talking about it at all. Now, many of the bigger clients we're working with are realizing this is our number one issue right now is helping people get through this. The tail from this, when you have a big event like this, and we've never seen an event like this, but there's the medical side of it, which is, as you say, is starting to pass. We're 50, 60%. We're starting to see declining rates. Great. Then there's the economic impact, which we don't know how long really that will take, but it's probably going to last for another year or two as we rebuild and get everything started again. Then the third part of an event like this is the mental health part, which experts are saying could last anywhere from five to 10 years. Absolutely. Adrian, let's emphasize and make a very clear definition of what anxiety is so people don't think that it's just, I'm feeling a little stressed. That's a great question because they are very different. Worry is you're focused on specific idea. Oh my gosh, I've got to make that presentation. Or, oh my gosh, I don't want to get sick from this pandemic. That's worry. If you worry enough about the same thing over and over, you start to feel stress. Stress is our body starts reacting. Now, if your body is in a long-term stress induced, then you can actually create sickness and it's not good for you. Anxiety is a little different. Anxiety can't, you can't develop anxiety from stress that is constant. We create in way many, yeah, it's many trauma that creates PTSD even, that develops into anxiety. So there's two types of really as anxiety as you look at it. One is that you have an anxiety disorder. This is a mental health condition that many people live with all their lives. It's about one in every five people. That's a huge number considering we never talked about this before this. Now, but we also have the other type of anxiety, which is more transient, which comes from this prolonged trauma that many people have gone through. So we've gone from about one fifth of people having an anxiety disorder to about a third of people now having a full-blown anxiety disorder. So that's not something they've lived with. It may pass in a while, but it may not too. So when you think about anxiety, it really is that even when the stressor is gone, it may remain. It may create panic attacks. It may create a feeling like you're overwhelmed. Uh, as one person who had anxiety said, she said, my ability to cope seems small and the problems always seem huge. So it's making that relative comparison to your ability to deal with the change to what you're feeling inside and your ability to call on resources and be resourceful in that moment. Exactly. Adrian, when you think about some of the executives that you've been coaching or advising, and they say, what can our managers and leaders do when they're on conference calls, talking with their teams? How could they check in a more meaningful way other than just saying, hey, is everybody good? Yeah, that's, a, that's such an important question because yeah, there are ways to spot anxiety. And you should never ever say, Bill, you have anxiety. I get you a call from HR if you have an HR group or get you somebody leaving pretty quickly. But as you say, we keep asking the same thing. Are you okay? And what's the answer? I'm fine. What we have to do is dig below the fine, a little vulnerability ourselves. Bill, how you doing? I'm fine. Really? Because, oh my gosh, let me tell you all the things I'm going through. I'm trying to get the kids to do Zoom school and my, I'm worrying about my aging parents and oh, we've got so much going on here at work. So I got, there are times where I really just need to, to talk and to get this out. How are you really doing? That's amazingly more, you have an ability to help people than simply, how are you doing today? One, one leader I was just talking with, he says, it's interesting, every morning, Monday morning, when we do our staff meetings, we do a go around. He says, how's everybody doing? Janice, how you doing? Great. How, Gary, how you doing? He says, then we go around another time and we say, Janice, how are you really doing? And it's amazing. He says, the second time around, she goes, my, my knuckle-headed kid, you wouldn't believe what he did. And then Gary, he says, I'm worried about this. And there are ways to really help, but we have to create trusting relationships where people are really willing to be vulnerable with each other. If trust doesn't exist, that's not going to happen. What I'm hearing you say is 
that we need to be transparent with our own situations. We need to be willing to be vulnerable as a manager and a leader in an organization. Then we also have to dedicate time to it. It can't just be, hey, everybody good? Great. Let's get onto the agenda. It has to be something where to show time, to show caring really is a function of spending time asking and listening and not expecting what the answer is, but really being there to be present for whatever the answer or reply might be. Yeah, very well said. There's three things that we we ask of a, of a leader. The first is to normalize this, to normalize mental health discussions. Look, everybody has anxiety. At different times in our lives, we will all go through something. And so you normalize it. Anxiety can be good, but it also can be very detrimental. We have to normalize it. The second is we destigmatize it, that this is not something bad. If we break our leg going skiing, we almost wear that as a badge of honor. But we have an, an injury to our most important organ of our body, our brain, and we don't talk about that. You got to take away that stigma to say, look, we've all going to go through this. We have to destigmatize it. And the last is to be empathetic. And that's very different than sympathy. Sympathy is I'm strong, you're weak, let me help you. Empathy is I've been there myself. I, I may not be going through the exactly what you're going through right now, but I've been in tough places. So what can I do to help? What can I do to be there for you? Versus try to fix, you're, you're asking them what you can do. A particular trait or characteristic in the workforce that's probably been particularly hard hit by this remote work are people on the team who have felt perfectionistic. They felt, got to get it all done. Because for them, working from home doesn't just mean working harder and managing what's there, but it means working all the time. There are no boundaries for people who are perfectionists and always wanting to work and to get it done further, faster, show that they're making the effort. What kind of symptoms and stories have you heard about people who've been perfectionistic and dealing with the remote work and its relationship to the creating a healthy workplace? This is such a big issue right now because if you have anxiety, there's a very good chance you are fairly perfectionistic in your in the way that you act. And many people are. They're perfectionists even within themselves, holding themselves to extremely high standards, which can never be met. They are expecting others to be perfect, perfect in what they do. There's a lot of ways this manifests. And I- What's interesting is that when people are asked directly, it's like what you said, you can't ask directly if someone's feeling anxiety. There are people who I remember one person I asked if she was a perfectionist and she says, I'm not, I'm working on it, but I'm not quite there yet. I like that. That's awesome. Because there really is a difference between getting to good. You look at this podcast, you've obviously done your research, you've, you, you prepare, but nothing's ever perfect. In fact, we had a little technical issue and we had to move our day. Things happen. And what do you do? You go, let's keep moving. But a perfectionist doesn't. A perfectionist thinks if I'm not going to be perfect, I, in many ways, I won't even get started. And many younger people coming to the workplace, I'm hearing this so much from leaders saying, I have a really hard time getting my younger employees to just get started because they're so afraid of making a mistake. Why are they afraid of making a mistake? They're afraid of losing their jobs in many cases. So certainly they're not going to take any risk. Certainly they're not going to do anything outside of their comfort zone. They're going to ride along very happily in their rut. So we as leaders really have to work on this. I was presenting some of these ideas recently to a big hospital system and one of the pediatric surgeons I noticed was nodding her head vehemently up on the Zoom call. So I called the nurse. I said, Dr. Allison, why are you nodding? She goes, she says, I do this. She says, my nurses, my techs do this. She says, we are in healthcare. We are so worried about making them, being perfect, making a mistake. We end up making more mistakes. She says, you just have to learn to do. You have to get out there and learn to do. And for the business owners listening to your show, this really is an issue. If you find somebody that seems to be stalling and not doing as what you want them to do, there is a good chance they're afraid. And you have to meet with them regularly 
visually. You got to show them what good enough looks like. You really have to check in their progress. Maybe sometimes pair them up with somebody who's a little bit more of a, a daredevil. So they help each other. One brings the other one back. The other one pulls the other along. There are ways that we talk about in anxiety at work that you can really work on perfectionism in, in your, whether it's in yourself or your people. Yeah, it's important to, as you say, not just address the work aspect, but do it in concrete ways to get it out of people's heads because they're so often concerned about, am I doing the work right? You mentioned millennials. I've got a son who's a millennial and new in the workforce, and he's figuring all these things out that you and I had the benefit of doing in large corporations by watching, by being mentored, by having people look over our shoulders, and you need to have that time. So it's the work aspect. I love that you mentioned reducing isolation by partnering people up and saying, you guys ought to just check in with each other once or twice a day. How are you doing? What are you working on? Are you making the progress that you thought you would? What's in your way? That sort of thing. And then the third area is to separate out. You are not your work. What you're producing, we really value. We rely on you for that. And on another level, we're really glad you're here. We like who you are. We want to get to know more about who you are. And that's not, it doesn't reflect on you if you're feeling anxious in this situation that all of us are dealing with in our own ways. Yeah, that's such an interesting and important point you're pointing out here too, is that a mistake or a C minus on one of your performances at work is not a reflection on who you are as an individual or how much we value you. None of us will ever get all A's. And people have to understand that is that it's okay. Let me help you get that from a C to an A, but also understand C is a good enough on this project you're working on. It's okay. Let's move on and, and understand we value you. So this really comes back to this idea of a really validating people. A lot of, especially high performers have something we call the imposter syndrome, right? Where my, my internal validation doesn't match up with what I'm hearing. And so we really need as bosses to be able to reinforce a lot of much more frequently than we've been used to. Hey, you know, you are doing the right work. These are the kinds of things I'm looking to accomplish. Can you think of an example of an executive you've worked with who didn't have the language in order to give the validation and was able to make some impact, make some inroads into supporting their team more by learning more of the language and making some changes based around your work together? I do some executive coaching with leaders around the world, actually, from Australia to Kuwait to throughout the US. And what's really interesting is to be able to see this, because many times I'm either working with organizations like high tech or automotive, banking, they're not exactly touchy-feely people. And they've been put into positions of authority because they're really good at what they do. They're the best banker. They're the best engineer. We should really make someone a vice president because they're good at spreadsheets. That's exactly the right criteria. We do. We do. And we don't look at, can you motivate a team? Can you inspire people? As I work with these individuals, what's really, it is really encouraging to see them start some of this. I'm working with with an automotive company, a vice president right now. Let's call him David. He's a true, they see him as a future rising star. Every room he goes into, he literally is the smartest guy in the room, has like a PhD in physics, and yet realizes that this soft stuff, I'm not the best at. So how do I do this? But he's trying and he's learning how to recognize, to provide feedback to, to especially to these younger team members to really do some of those things. I love the comment he made recently as we were talking through this. He goes, Adrian, he says, this is more important than I think it is, isn't it? And I went, yeah. And it was this aha moment. And, and he realizes that his people are motivated in very different ways from him. He's now in his mid forties. He's very successful. He makes a lot of money. He's worrying about a lot different things than the younger people in his care and that he needs to provide some pretty constant feedback and especially affirmation. You're doing the right work. You're doing good work. 
work. This is what I really value. And if you're not, let me coach you to get you from that C to an A. David's learning to work with the members of his team and not just look at their work, but also address them and help reinforce that other side, which is the kind of unconditional regard and respect we have for each other. And then there's the, we need to improve your performance. So he's learning to make those distinctions. And as a result, what kind of feedback have you observed or has he gotten from some of the people he's worked with? No, that's an interesting up is that already his team are starting to see, like the other day, he said, I sent a bottle of wine to one of my, my team members who had done something great. What was remarkable is that this team member came in the next day and said, hey, did you get the bottle of wine? He says, yeah, my, my wife opened that up. She wants me to work harder for you now. And he says, he was amazing. He says, who would have thought this? Now, I'm not going to send a bottle of wine to your Muslim or Mormon employee. You have to be very specific about what you send to where. But he knew this employee. He knew that this person was a wine lover and he'd gone above and beyond. And so when he got this, it really meant a lot to him. And so again, we talk about being very specific in your gratitude. One of the things I coached him with, don't just send that. Either send a note or let him know why you are doing this so it doesn't just show up. He said, okay, because he just wouldn't have worried about that because again, not everybody's like me, he's realizing. People need that reinforcement from their boss where he doesn't really. Part of our jobs is not just to do the work, but also to help improve the culture, improve the way we get things done, to look out for our teammates and support them. And it doesn't mean that you're helping the manager or boss do that. It means that each of us, no matter what role we have, even as an individual contributor, even as an individual contributor, we're able to reach out and help make it a, a better atmosphere. In culture, yeah, you're so right. You saw this with Apple, you've seen it with other organizations you've worked with. Culture really begins down at the individual level. It doesn't begin with the CEO or the head of HR. If I go to Disneyland and take my family there and we get on the jungle ride and I got a grumpy, lousy young man taking us across the ride. Yeah, except for grumpy. Yeah. But if I see an angry employee and I leave thinking, well, that Disney's got a lousy culture. What are they talking about? They got a great culture. We know that a culture comes down to that individual. And yet sometimes we as leaders don't think that we control this, especially the small business, the medium business owners. We don't want to put any were near enough time thinking about culture. The great ones, they do. Unfortunately, mm. he he was a COVID victim. Unfortunately, we just lost Taylor, who was the CEO of Texas Roadhouse. But he's about to, his book will be published in September uh, with Simon and & Schuster. And, and we helped him write this. And what was fascinating, if you've ever been to a Texas Roadhouse, it's a chain of 600 restaurants across the US and in 10 countries around the world and 70,000 employees. And culture comes first. He has his list of operating procedures. Yeah, they've got great food. They've got amazing ambiance, this, that, and the other. But he says, if you don't focus first and foremost on your employees, you will never be successful. So they're roadies, they call them. Texas Roadhouse. They call them their employees, their roadies come first. And if our roadies are happy, they're going to take care of our guests. And so really built this from three of the first five restaurants failed up to now a, a business that's multi-billion dollars a year in sales. Fantastic. And why? Because they haven't strayed from their culture. They know that comes first. Probably they've expanded and developed the culture and the code that helps people understand when they are contributing to the culture into very specific do's and don'ts. We do respond to people this way. We don't ghost them or ignore them or act rudely to them. Isn't that kind of the way that people learn quickly what the code is as a roadie? Yeah, you're so 
Right. And in fact, one one CEO once told us, he says, if you do not define your culture, don't worry. A culture will define itself at your company. Now, it won't be the one you want, but so culture is going to create itself whether or not. And so one thing Kent Taylor did was you're exactly right. Now, everything wasn't on day one. They didn't have the playbook, but they've developed it over time to say they realize that, for instance, when guests come in, they needed a manager up front, uh, manager at the door, they call it, and to make sure that everything in that process that the person is welcomed is perfect. They've they found different ways. When roadies come in, there's a multi-week training process to make sure that they understand the, the Texas Roadhouse way. There are culture coaches in each region to, to make sure that people understand what it means to work here. And many of them are college students. They're making 15 bucks an hour, bringing out plates of food and drinks. But that doesn't mean that they can't really create a place where people love to go to work. And mm-hmm. it really paid off. In fact, when the pandemic hit and restaurants were laying off millions of employees, Texas Roadhouse was actually hiring. They were the number one restaurant in the US throughout the entire pandemic because they turned their business on a dime. They were 95% sit-down restaurants. They went to 100% takeout and they were back in the black in four weeks because their employees brought them there. Yeah, there's something about an unintended consequence of people who have that shared culture and that shared sense of mission and identity. Their ability to make a pivot and adapt to unexpected circumstances is so strong. You've observed that. Oh, there's no doubt. You're so right that it really is this shared culture that will propel organizations. And sometimes though, people will say to us, oh my gosh, you must go into some really diseased environments with your consulting work on culture. Oh, you must have some good stories. And the, the question, no, we don't get called into those places and they'll never call us because they just don't get it. We get called into these companies that are doing really well and they want to keep it going and they want to keep pushing themselves and stretching and getting better and better. And yeah, we really don't have these terrible stories of terrible cultures because those leaders will never get it. And they never, and unfortunately, their boards don't get it. Their chairman don't get it, that they don't bring in somebody better. And in fact, so now and then they might hire somebody by accident who tries to improve culture. And that person gets repelled quite quickly. I'd, uh, I won't mention his name, but yeah, got hired by a huge organization and very quick. And he wanted culture first. Within a year, he was gone, even though he doubled their stock price. It's like an organ transplant of the wrong type. Amy Edmondson says that many leaders, and Amy Edmondson, she's a a well-known Harvard Business School professor and a well-respected writer who talks about culture all the time. And she says, many leaders fail to recognize the implications of silence in moments when people could have spoken up. The surprise is how often the use of words is stymied by interpersonal anxiety. That means a little bit of discomfort is preventing people from really speaking up and being there for each other. Being there to correct and course correct when people are suddenly off track. What do you notice that's helpful for identifying when this is a situation within a business team? And then what kind of advice do you give people to help them course correct and get back on track? Yeah, this is such a key concept. Now, Amy Emmonson of Harvard Business School popularized the term psychological safety. And one of the things that she was talking to us about there as we interviewed her was that she says people have to use their voice. Now, that sounds really basic. 
okay, no, all my people use their voice. Trust me. Raising anything that might be even considered contrary. And, and she says, you have to teach people to be able to speak up. If something is happening that's affecting one of your customers, that's affecting a process, is affecting your business, people have to feel able to speak up and debate issues. Every issue of our lives, we debate politics and sports and our kids. And yet we come to work and, and we'll be quiet because I could lose my job. So we really do have to take that away and let people have a voice. And one of the ways you do that is by creating some ground rules. This is how we act with each other. And I've seen this happen in great organizations where they'll say, here's our ground rules. When we, we want to debate, first off, we always, we, we can challenge the person, but we never, sorry, we can challenge the idea, but never the person. Specifically, what does that sound like so that people can really grasp this? You know, I like, for example, on that rule, we challenge the idea, but not the person is we come in to the debate, not to ram home our point, but to listen. But if we're hearing something that we don't really believe in, we can challenge it. We can talk about it. We can ask clarifying questions. That's where we begin. Instead of saying, Bill, that's a dumb idea. We tried that back in 1989. It didn't work. That's not helpful. But we can say, Bill, give me more information. Why Why you'd want to go down that road? Give me some facts. Give me some data. Whatever you want to. You can challenge that idea in a very respectful way. But I can't say, you know, Bill, one more dumb idea. It's That's challenging the person. That's not acceptable to their face. And it's certainly not acceptable behind their back. That's who we are as an organization. You start setting these ground rules for debate and they do help. They do help people feel safe and listened to. And again, a manager can also, simple little things. You go around, okay, has everybody been heard? Let's go around. Now, everybody does that. But at the end, the manager can say, okay, this has been just such a terrific debate. Thank you everyone for your excellent ideas. This has been so great. Wise people could go either way. I think we need to go this way and this is why. But next time, people aren't going to be afraid to share because they know they've been listened to even if their ideas weren't used. Talking and using your voice to not just debate and look to course correct, but sometimes it's also about being vulnerable in what you need. I remember reading in your book, Anxiety at Work, about Madeline Parker, and she needed to take some mental time, a mental health day because she was feeling overwhelmed and she knew that she needed to just step away and she sent an email to her team. Can you pick up that example, elaborate on it and tell us what happens next? Yeah, Madeline was a programmer for a company called Olark in Michigan. It's a mid-sized firm. And she says, look, I know myself. And she says, I know that after a stretch of working, and she's a programmer. There are stretches of, you work for Apple. There are stretches where you're crunching and you're numb. And she says, I realized I was building up and I was about to burn out. So I send an email saying, guys, I need a couple of mental health days. I'm going to be, you're not going to be able to get a hold of me. And she says, I get back to the office after a couple of days. And she says, I read the messages and they were so supportive from my team. But she says, the one that touched me the most was from my CEO who said, Madeline, thank you for being an example. We all need to do this. That's one of the dirty little secrets of anxiety is we've all felt this, whether we feel it now or at other times. And he says, thank you for your example. We all need to learn from you. And she says, it was so touching to me that the CEO had not only helped me up as an example, but really I felt supported. So are we normalizing this? The CEO did. And he woke up a little bit to the issue and that's okay. But he also was an ally to her as well. And that's what we need at work. He was an ally at the highest level who said, 
This is not only okay, this is completely something we all need to do when we're feeling ourselves getting to this point. We need to recruit allies who are at our level, who are on our team, and who are above us, as well as be allies to others. It's something that adds a dimension to our thinking about how we're interacting with our teams and interacting with our companies and even people beyond our companies, because we're all part of a community that could be experiencing this anxiety at work. Oh, it's so true. Because being an ally is not only for those with anxiety, but anybody who feels marginalized in a team, you think of sometimes I'm the only woman on a team. I may be the only person of a certain religious denomination, the only Muslim on a team, etc. I may be LGBTQ+, maybe a different race than everybody else. There's a lot of reasons that people feel like others, and that's never good. We've all felt like the only one, the new kid in school, and that'll last for a little while. But imagine that you're the only one day after day. It gets incredibly marginalizing. It gets very hard for people, and many people, incredibly higher numbers of people who feel like others develop anxiety, feel like they're not supported. So just what you said about we really do need to not only be allies ourselves, but recruit others in this process to really single out and lift those who need to be sponsored. It really is a vital idea. It's not being politically correct. It's a good thing for organizations, and it's even better thing for the people in our Well said, Adrian. Tell me, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best Lightning Round? Oh boy, okay, I'm ready. We talked at the beginning about someone who inspired you growing up, and you talked about your dad. When you were a teenager, Adrian, what was a song that you loved? Stairway to Heaven was a, it was a great one. It was the first one I learned on the guitar. That's a great one to learn on the guitar because of the progression. That's right. I can still play it probably. One of the companies that you and Chester Elton run is called Culture Works. So you're really on a mission to help people develop cultures that work effectively for everyone who is involved. What do you find to be an effective way to reach out and connect with those that would benefit from your work on a week-to-week basis? That's really why we write books is to put our ideas out there because it's not going to be for everybody. As I mentioned, there's many companies just don't care. So we put our ideas out in written form. I write for Forbes. We we publish books. Really what we're looking to do is put our work out there so that if you have an interest, you'll come find us. What would you say is the best $100 or so purchase you've made in the last six months? $100 purchase? I was going to say, best purchases are my high-def camera that's uh, been great for Zoom, but it's a little bit more than 100 bucks. But yeah, that's my best purchase lately. What would you say is the best business advice you've ever received? No, it's interesting. We started working with California Pizza Kitchen years ago when they were the hot thing. I remember going to their headquarters in Los Angeles. As you walked in the front door, there was this big sign that says, not everybody's going to like what we do, and that's okay. And I just thought, what a great you know, mantra to live by, that we're never going to please everybody. Let's please who we please, and let's make those people happy. And what is a book that you've given the most that isn't one of your own? Uh, probably our good friend Marshall Goldsmith's book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Very practical, a really great coaching book to really push you to the next level. Complete this prompt for me. I know I'm being successful when... Yeah, I know I'm being successful when I'm being the person that I want to be. I'm living up to to the values that I know are important, that I'm doing the work. I'm pushing myself, not just 
So I, we have an interview like this. I want to push myself. I want to you know do better versus just repeating the same pat answers. I really want to push myself. So when I'm doing my best work, when I'm I'm being the person I want to be. What would you say is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? Thinking that I can control everything, just being accepting of what happens and working on that every day. Do you remember a specific example where in the past you would have gotten all wound up about it and then this time it's, oh, can't control that. What was the sign? I'm not a perfectionist, but I'm working on it. My dad, who's 91, had a heart attack a month ago. He's in Canada. Canada is locked down. It's, you can't get in there. I tried to get a medical exemption to go in, this, and the other, and he wasn't sick enough. And so it was a pain, but I was able to keep talking with him. In fact, I just got off the phone with him this morning and he's doing very well and he's out of the hospital. But it was one of those things where I would have gotten very worked up about it, but you just have to realize I can't control everything. You just have to let it go. And it's hard, but it's something you work on. Is there a particular practice that you found helpful, like maybe taking a breath or writing in a journal or something that helps you with that? You know, this is not connected with that specifically, but a silly little thing that I do, but I find it's quite effective is if I'm working like in home and I'm just going from my office into the rest of the house, I'll get to that door and I'll turn and I'll say, stay. Uh, silly little thing, but sometimes those things help us. You stay there. I'm not bringing you with me. All those worries, all those concerns, stay. I'm, I'm just going to go. This is my time to be with those that I love and to be excited to see them. Sometimes we create these little rituals that are very important to us that can help. I'm so glad to hear that your dad's doing better. And I'm so happy to hear that you have that stay ritual as if it were a dog or some pet that you're commanding it to stay within the container of your office. That's great. Adrian, would you tell me a little bit more about the global We Thrive community? I know that's something you and Chester started recently, and I hear that it's thriving. Tell me what it's about. We've got a really fun community at wethrivetogether.global. This is our gift to anybody who's feeling anxiety at work. We put this together. There's nothing commercial on there. It's just people come in there and they type in, I'm feeling stressed about a presentation I got to make next week at work. What should I do? And other people respond and it's a community to help each other if you're feeling any sort of anxiety, or maybe you're trying to run a team that, that has some anxiety. So we have events on there, but really the power in it is the community. So it's really people coming to support each other and it's been really fun just to see people join and, and start being a little bit vulnerable, get some answers to questions they have about things they're worrying about. Chester and I pipe in and answer some questions, but the real power is people helping each other. Adrian, you've been so helpful and generous in sharing today on my quest for the best, starting with the example your dad set by leaving a, a secure, well-paid job and moving to a different country and joining a, a different industry in order to move forward. We talked about the importance of having a mental health discussions at work so that we normalize and destigmatize and then empathize with people. We talked about the importance of perfectionism and recognizing it and poking fun at it, and then allowing people to really contribute, knowing that they're not going to be held to this impossible standard. We talked about the example of the roadies, the Texas Roadhouse, and how they've really created a, a powerful culture. We talked about the example with Madeline Parker and how she sent an email out, not realizing how powerful it was to be vulnerable with her team and the tremendous response that she got back. We talked about so many things and ended up with the power of community within the global Thrive community, where people can find people who they can relate to, feel 
safe with, learn together, and make a difference. So for these reasons and so many more, Adrian, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you very much, Bill. It's been a pleasure. Adrian, before we say goodbye for now, tell me, where is it we can find out more about you and your work online? Great. Uh, we're at gosticandelton.com or anxietyatworkbook.com. Adrian Gostick, co-author of Anxiety at Work. I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thanks, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.